Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, streaming this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Nutrition is a topic that seems to be very confusing. There's so many people out there shouting really loud about things that they believe to be accurate. And then there's other people out there who seem to be at the top of the totem pole teaching principles that, from my experience, are relatively consistent across the board in the people who actually understand nutrition. Today's guest is an absolute brilliant nutritionist, and I'm so grateful that Sam Miller joined me today to talk about nutrition principles. Sam and I dive into ultimately how to help you make better decisions around nutrition. Nutrition is this thing where people try to enforce tactics. Try this fad diet, try this supplement, try this cardio regime, whatever it happens to be to transform your body in a short amount of time, rather than giving you tools or principles from which from which you can make effective decisions. And I'm so grateful for Sam giving us his time and his wisdom today. You guys are going to love this conversation. Get it a pen, get it a piece of paper, and let's get to it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Grass-Fed Liver and Bone Marrow by Ancestral Supplements. Ancestral Supplements makes New Zealand-sourced nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, and bone marrow in a simple and convenient gelatin capsule. Getting in organ meats is an imperative part of optimized health and performance, especially if you eat a lot of muscle meat. Typically in our culture, organ meats are not something that is a prized part of our nutrition. However, we know that organ meats provide incredibly bioavailable sources of vitamin A, choline, folate, B12, copper, iron, and fat-soluble activators that are absent in the modern diet. This is nourishment that is known to support methylation and ultimately fundamental health. And I highly suggest that every one of my clients and every one of my listeners consume some type of organ meat. And I love Ancestral and I've been using them for a while now because they actually provide it in really simple to consume varieties of organ meats. I typically consume liver, I consume kidney, and sometimes I consume a blend of all of the organ meats and allows me to get it in a simple and easy to consume way that ultimately allows me to not have to cook organ meats. And I do sometimes cook organ meats because you know Belcampo is also an incredible sponsor of this podcast, but Ancestral is a brand new sponsor of the podcast. We want to support Ancestral and ultimately support your health. Thank you so much to Ancestral for being a part of the muscle intelligence community and supporting our journey to live a great life in a body that we absolutely love so we can be lean, healthy, and muscular for life. Go to ancestralsupplements.com and use the code BEN to get 10% off. And this discount also applies on US Amazon, which is awesome. Sam Miller, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. I think we got connected many years ago, and it's finally great to have you on the podcast. You're doing some awesome stuff. I follow your Instagram page pretty closely, and you're putting out some great info, man. So I'm looking forward to digging into your brain. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so I think we wanted to start off on, um, um, you know, as I said, my my objective for my audience is to have people understand basic nutritional 
principles, right? So, so many people jump on some fad diet or some tactic they think is going to work for a short period of time, you know, maybe works for a couple of weeks and they, they kind of, you know, lose control or they, they rebound back to where they were before. So, I want to start diving into what you believe to be, you know, the foundations of human nutrition. Like, you know, if I were to give a you know, a construct of how I approach nutrition, it's usually from a perspective of just like, you know, minimize inflammation. So I always say I make decisions through a lens of inflammation. And like, I don't know if you think that if you would agree with that, but that's kind of what I'm looking for here is like some um, overarching principles that you abide by, whether someone's opt looking to optimize health or, and then eventually working into performance. So if there's some basic things that you think um, all listeners would benefit from understanding from a basic level of nutritional health. For sure. So I always like to look at nutrition and just physical goals in general through kind of a framework or model, because you know, 90% of the time in the health and fitness industry, what we find is folks are coming to coaches or maybe they're seeking out podcast information or they're brought to social media because they have physical goals. And what we typically see are those surface level, um, you know, it could be a performance goal. It could maybe be someone wants to be leaner and more muscular. And I think that's where a lot of people get started in their transformation, but they don't necessarily think about, well, what precedes that physical goal? And I think that's something that um, is discussed quite frequently on, on muscle intelligence. So I'm excited to be able to kind of frame it today in a specific way, which is if we look at our physical goals and understand that physiology and our internal health is going to precede our ability to actually reach that goal, we can then have a lot more leverage in not only achieving that goal in the first place, but then the sustainability of that goal, because we understand number one, how we got there. And number two, our body is not going to sort of have this, uh, you know, negative rebound effect or dietary rebound effect that we see all too often uh, when it comes to mainstream, mainstream uh, sort of social media and things like that. So in order to control our physiology, really where we turn would be practices and perceptions. So for example, Ben might be an advocate of an anti-inflammatory diet or, or pursuing nutrition through the lens of minimizing inflammation. That would be a dietary practice. You could incorporate fasting. You might incorporate specific food choices. All of those are basically going to be habits, routines, and rituals that you incorporate on a daily basis to move you in the direction, which is solely going to be dependent on your goal, which you can figure out, you know, for yourself, or maybe you're working with a fitness professional, nutrition professional to, um, or medical professional to make that happen. You know, our perceptions, that's kind of our relationship with food, our relationship with exercise, our relationship with community. And I think that plays a really big role in our dietary decisions as well. So we kind of look through that frame and understand that, okay, our daily actions, our habits, our practices here, and understanding that we have these dietary tools, nutritional tools to then influence our physiology, you know, barring any sort of medical condition or sort of, uh, unforeseen circumstances that, you know, 90, 98% of the time when we're looking at clients all too often, it's, uh, you know, dosing the appropriate sort of exercise and dosing the appropriate nutrition protocol is really what's led them to that place physiologically. Um, and that's, that's where we start to discuss things like hormones and biofeedback and inflammation and, and, to kind of touch on your point when it comes to inflammation, really what is inflammation? It's a form of stress in the body, right? We could have uh, glycemic sort of issues. We could have circadian disruption. Maybe there's some form of inflammatory stress. Maybe it's perceived stress. We have this psychological stress coming in through our environment. So when you start to look at nutrition sort of through this paradigm and understanding that stress and energy are our primary variables, and really what we're trying to do is influence physiology, it makes us a lot, I guess, more effective at pursuing that physical goal that we had in the first place. And you can apply this to someone who is maybe trying to get beach body ready, someone who's trying to get ready for a bodybuilding competition. It could be a power lifter or strength athlete, um, or maybe someone pursuing more of a traditional sport as well. The framework is still going to apply. So it's really 
zooming out to a point where we can think critically about, uh, you know, whether it's clients' lives or your own life and how stress and energy play a role, and then your baseline activities and what that is doing on a day-to-day basis and influencing your physiology, whether that's sleep, whether that's eating, whether that's fasting, um, or any other sort of fitness or nutrition-related decision that you're going to make. Superman. So jumping off, like your your basic overarching ethos, if I can use my mouth today, um, you know, so basically what it sounds like is you're going to take this perspective of what are the demands being placed on your body and how do I eat to support those demands? Yeah. So it's eating to support those demands, but also maybe not just through demands in the sense of movement. Cause I think a lot of people, when they hear demands, right, they think calories in Physical. and calories out. Sure. But I, if I have an executive or someone in maybe more of the corporate space or maybe an entrepreneur or through self-employment, you know, maybe there's jet lag or, you know, I know, pre kind of everything that happened in 2020, you were traveling for seminars all the time, maybe for Ben and his nutrition and overall health, we have to take into account that maybe there's long flights, there's, you know, sleep alterations, there's adjustments. And so the demands, I want, I want people to think of not just the demands in the gym during your training session. Yes, that is a very important stimulus and will influence how your body responds to things like carbohydrate um, and just you know, resiliency in general, but we can't just think of demands as training demands. We want to think of, you know, overall lifestyle stressors, you know, what is your current sort of metabolic state? Someone with insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome is going to have different nutritional needs than someone who's maybe in the case of being over dieted, uh, and, and basically needs to maybe potentially do a little bit less and, uh, potentially add a bit of food to the system. So that's where we get a little bit more case dependent and start looking through that lens of stress and energy. But I definitely do consider demands. Uh, we could think of it essentially as you know, in terms of uh, movement, that certainly plays a role in expenditure, but we also have to look at, okay, how, how, you know, capable is our body of actually storing that energy and, or expending that energy. So someone who has, um, you know, potentially is overweight or obese, we're, we're definitely running into an issue where that's not necessarily, you know, preferentially being stored as muscle glycogen, right? We're not necessarily putting them in a place. We're probably, if not making the proper nutritional decisions, we might exacerbate type, you know, pre-diabetic state or type two diabetes, or, um, you know, push them down the path. If we were looking essentially at labs, maybe glucose markers, insulin markers, A1C, all of those may, you know, get worse versus someone who's in a state where, you know, maybe they can sort of handle, um, sort of that additional energy influx. So kind of bring it back. So I would look at demands on the stress side, which can be, um, anything from your lifestyle, or it could be from, which would include things like lack of sleep, or maybe you're getting plenty of sleep. Uh, and then we could also look at stress in the form of training and training output, but also non-exercise movement, things like walking, um, or maybe there's other, you know, outdoor activity that you enjoy and things like that. So we can kind of frame demands there, um, in terms of stress and energy demands and, uh, kind of, launched from there. So how much are you placing your decision making on objective markers? Like you say, you bring up like blood labs or something like an organic acid test as compared to subjective variables, um, like, you know, how they feel energetically versus how they slept. And, and like, you know, ultimately, you know, blood work and urine analysis is a snapshot in time, which can give us an acute idea of what's going on system by system. But um, there's also the subjective variables of how I feel. So I'm curious your uh, approach to just like the average person, like what level of um, weight are you placing on objective versus subjective variables? I think they both need to be looked at equally because the issue we run into with functional health testing is this amazing you know, as it is and the advances that we have and the resources that are potentially at our fingertips, it is very costly for clients, especially looking from a coaching perspective. And as you mentioned, it's a snapshot in time. So unless you're doing something like uh, maybe it's 
uh, with a Dutch test, you're doing a cycle mapping test and following for a long period of time, or using some form of tool where maybe you're getting, you know, a four point cortisol or adrenal sort of testing versus a single point in time, like a lab test, unless you really have that, uh, you know, Ben's right. You're basically, it would be the equivalent of, you know, you're looking at what time it is and you're getting that data in that singular moment, not accounting for the other 24 hours of the day. So I place a huge emphasis on those subjective markers, but I do try to create some form of system or sort of quantitative measures for doing so. So in terms of biofeedback, I'm always looking at sleep, hunger, recovery, energy, digestion, and stress. So an easy way to remember that is as shreds. And so constantly from a coaching perspective, or even if you're kind of bringing yourself through your own transformation, touching base on those biofeedback markers each week or even each day can really inform you of, you know, is your nutrition serving you? Is your training serving you? Or is it potentially misaligned based on what you're going through in your life right now? And so as much as I love that data, and if we could get concrete labs and labs are more accessible for everyone, I think it's a great tool to learn about your health. But the reality of it is, is most people in you know day-to-day life are certainly not getting that done every week, every month, or even every quarter, uh, or possibly even every year. So we need to turn to other markers that we can potentially use in order to inform our decisions about our health. And I think you know fatigue does matter. Your digestion does matter. Your energy levels, your recovery, that's certainly going to influence your ability to make progress, bringing it back to that overall, you know, transformation that we were talking about. Someone's moving towards a physical goal, but they feel like garbage. They're going to have a very hard time finding sustainability and adhering to that program. So I think we always have to bring it back to, if we're looking at those subjective markers, even if someone on paper theoretically might be quote unquote in range, right. But if they don't feel good, it's going to make it a lot harder to do the right things, to go for that walk, to do the yoga, to get in the gym for that training session. Uh, and then also performing optimally in that training session, right? So if we're placing an emphasis on some form of stimulus, progressive overload, you know, we simply can't do that if, you know, all of those markers I mentioned in terms of shred, sleep, hunger, recovery, energy, digestion, stress are, um, you know, if those are off, if those are flawed, I think it's going to create a significant sort of anchor that's going to keep you from moving forward in your transformation. I like that framing. That's great. Shreds. Now that's exactly going down the path of what I want to ask you. Do you have, you know, Assuming that shreds is, um, you know, kind of the the premise or the, the framework of which you make decisions, is that an, also an order of operations? So, you know, if someone comes to you and says, Sam, my sleep stinks, my digestion's poor, I'm highly inflamed, I'm a little bit insulin resistant, my energy's not awesome. Um, you know, sometimes doing all of them at the same time is uh, overwhelming and likely setting them up for failure. So do you have a specific order of operations you like to uh, take? Or is it just like, what's the, what's the biggest uh, deficit? Or maybe what's the low hanging fruit? How do you typically approach decision-making. Right. So I think from a client needs perspective, we could look at it in a number of ways. So I mentioned adrenal dysfunction before, just relative to that testing, you know, someone who does not have, um, essentially a healthy circadian rhythm or diurnal rhythm with compromised sleep. Well, we know sleep helps to modulate inflammation through the cytokine response and just overall, you know, is healing and restorative. So if you're not getting that sleep, that's certainly a role, but we have to look at what is the root cause of the sleep? Is it your routine and your schedule, or is it because you live a highly stressful life or potentially is it related to, um, you know, your activities, you know, maybe you're watching TV or something or, um, engaging on social media, as opposed to winding down and reading before bed or breathing, or, um, maybe some hydrotherapy or something like that. So I think we have to, you know, through that sort of intake process, or if you're going through this yourself, um, and assessing your own life, you have to look at shreds, not necessarily as an order of operations, but as a opportunity to dissect areas for improvement. So if I were having subpar digestion, well, we know that there's a significant connection between stress and digestion. 
you know, simply the act of being stressed may influence, you know, are you chewing? Are you in a parasympathetic state during your meals? Are you um, taking sort of the opportunity to maybe go for that walk and enhance your digestion after a larger meal? Probably not if you're living this hectic sort of stressful lifestyle. So I always like to bring people back to the why, you know, is your digestion compromised? Yes, we know that stress and cortisol, um, you know, CRF or corticotropin releasing factor, if we're getting into the science of it all, can certainly influence things like intestinal permeability and, you know, our overall gut health and digestive health. But, you know, I have to always bring it back to, okay, what is this person's lifestyle? Is the sleep preceding the stress? Are they less resilient to the stressor because they're sleep? Or uh, so for example, if someone has a great routine, but their sleep quality is not good, maybe I'm going to address the sleep first versus someone whose routines and habits are off and they can't manage their stress. You know, managing the stress may indirectly spill over into sleep benefits. So that's kind of an example of you have to sort of, it's kind of that chicken or the egg with, you know, a lot of times with shreds, but if we can pick one or two things to focus on and then tackle those over maybe two to four weeks and then progressively add layers to it. I, you know, as people build momentum, I think they're a lot more confident in the implementations as you move to more advanced things, right? So maybe before we're even considering recovering from an intense workout, we just want baseline morning energy levels to be in a good place. We just want healthy bowel movements every day, um, moving people in the right direction with the foundational pillars of health. And then we're going to add on top of that, um, you know, based on what they can sort of withstand. So there's not um, one way to do it. There's not one right way. And I think it's important to kind of look at someone's end of one experience and determine uh, based on that, like how, how we could sort of best approach our future decision-making. sounds like you, um, you know, take what I would call a systems approach to nutrition, like you're going system by system and going which which one needs to be addressed rather than uh, what most nutritionists seem to be doing these days. And that's kind of a macro approach, right? Most nutritionists out there just say, it's all about macro, not most, but many say it's all about, all about macros, just hit these macros and you're going to be great. Whereas there's this, this other camp that suggests that yes, of course, macros matter, but there's also these other other physiological realities, such as stress, such as sleep, such as inflammation, insulin resistance, that are going to impact decision making around nutrition. Um, so can you speak to to kind of both sides of that? For sure. So I can appreciate where I think macros were born out of the idea that sometimes we need simplification to breed understanding within the industry, and if things are overly complicated, people have a hard time executing or adhering to that. However, you know, with macros, we lose sight of things like micros and, and you and I actually discussed it a bit before the podcast, you know, looking at the importance of micronutrients. So when we're taking a macro approach, that's a single toggle. So if I were to look at when I, when I view transformation roughly, just if, if we're going to focus on maybe seven to 10 priorities, you know, I, I call them kind of the 10 toggles, but essentially with our transformation toggles, um, macros would be just one of the, you know, the many things we could do, someone could eat the same amount of macros, but be in a micro, you know, be in a state of micronutrient deficiency. We actually see that a lot with chronic dieting. One of the, I think the most underrated components of transformation right now is simply when you subtract calories, unless you're making more nutrient dense choices, as you've made that calorie subtraction, if you just eat the same and reduce your portion size, you've now not only created this sort of energy deficit, which you do, you know, you are sort of approaching fat loss from that perspective if you're using the macro-based view, but you are also subtracting micronutrients unless you're backfilling that with supplementation or you are sort of making a very conscious decision to make nutritional choices uh, based on your new sort of calorie and macro intake, I think you're going to run into trouble. So macros are just one thing for me. I look at mac, uh, overall macronutrient intake. I would look at micronutrient intake. Uh, we'll look at things like nature and time outside. 
Uh, I'm very, very big on stress management. We've mentioned that obviously with shreds already sleep. So even just there, we have four or five toggles that we can play with at the outset from whether you're a beginner, whether you're intermediate or advanced, we can look at these additional things because guess what? You're not going to always change your macros every week, regardless of whether you're in a muscle building phase or a fat loss phase. I think it neglects other components of transformation and also just sort of improving yourself as a human being that will put you in a you know better place for sort of resiliency and sustainability long-term. So when I'm looking at those toggles, you know, maybe it's not a macro change that we need. Maybe I, we noticed that because we were pushing some form of training or exercise movements, uh, you were actually really sedentary the rest of the week. And so we actually need not to sort of change our macros. Maybe what we actually needed to do was look at our non-exercise activity and getting outside more. Potentially that was the issue there. So really depending on where a client is, in their lifespan and uh, where they are currently with their health, that's going to influence what we're doing. But I do agree. Many people take the macro-based approach. I view macros as a tool in a toolbox, as opposed to the single frame that you're going to look through. There will be clients that um, really love and succeed with macros. There are also people where that may not serve them um, you know, to the highest level of what they need to actually reach that physical goal that they have, or maybe their physical goal isn't specific to the point where, you know, they're going to thrive with those macros. But I think to neglect things like, um, basic human movement and walking, and you talk about breathing quite a bit here on the podcast. Uh, I think it neglects so many elements of health that really play into it. So I do take more of a full body systems approach. And that's just from what I've noticed in, in transformation is, you know, we have these issues where people aren't actually sustaining their weight loss, or maybe they did lose weight, but now they're in a state of HPA axis overactivation, thyroid downregulation, and transient changes with reproductive hormones. And then we end up in a state where I don't have optimal thyroid output. So I don't feel like maybe have, I don't have that energy. I have brain fog. Uh, I'm not able to do the non-exercise movement that I enjoy, or maybe my training sessions are compromised. So if we were to look at total daily energy expenditure, and you really wanted to just break it down in a formulaic component for those who are maybe a bigger fan of, of math versus sort of this philosophical approach that Ben and I are talking about. If we look at total daily energy expenditure in that chronic dieter example, what we're seeing is likely what's happened is they've downregulated their non-exercise activity and they're having compromised performance in the gym, which is going to be detriment to their exercise activity. And now we're not building quite as much muscle either because we're having subpar training sessions with maybe the lack of focus or intentionality that we had previously, or we can't exert the same effort. So by taking the full body systems perspective and also looking at stress and energy as your main variables and just understanding that macros are a single toggle within kind of that framework and looking at energy, I think it gives you a lot more power to adjust things when things either don't go your way, or maybe things are going well, and we don't necessarily need a macro change. So it's certainly a tool. I'm not opposed to those who choose to use that tool, but I think only looking at that tool neglects key components of health and longevity for uh, most humans. Great explanation. So the way I tend to approach it, or I believe, is that People, when they begin a, a, a diet plan, typically have a higher amount of fat. Their energy expenditure is typically higher. They usually see a pretty significant loss in the first one to three months just by adjusting macros. But there seems to always become a point where um, the fat loss seems to stop and it's almost like the, the muscle loss starts to exceed the fat loss. And at that point, it's like, okay, that lever, as you say, that toggle has stopped working as much. Now we need to kind of eat to fuel performance, as you say, and increase calories a little bit so you can you can take a performance view of transformation. So you lose a bunch of fat and now you get to a point, your body starts to lose muscle. Okay, now you got to stop that. You got to blunt the, the muscle loss, fuel performance to allow you to, to work harder in the gym, to have that greater uh, non-exercise energy 
energy expenditure and therefore maintain the muscle as you then use that performance to continue to burn fat. Does that sound like it kind of aligns with your thought? Yeah, that's a very succinct way to sort of outline that. And, and just for those kind of listening, you know, uh, wherever you may find yourself, just to understand that non-exercise movement is not necessarily just your walks, right? It could be, I might be having this conversation with Ben and if I'm in a significantly dieted state or, you know, Ben, if you were to think back to your contest preps, like, are you talking with your hands as much? Are you, are your eyes moving as much? Are you, are you as animated? You know, we, even the slight little changes in energy output there, I think that's very, very important. And what we're learning now, this is going to be more of like evolutionary sort of anthropology here and looking at nutrition through that lens. But, you know, my, my concern is looking at metabolism as it's additive the entire time versus sort of compensatory, like more activity and less food without periodization, I think puts us in a, a problematic position. So I think with periodization, you can use that lever of less energy. And as you said, maybe more movement and that brought that person to fat loss. But now what have we created? So we've essentially used, even if it's not necessarily a fully fasted state, what we've attempted to do is improve the insulin sensitivity through a reduction in overall energy which then improved our ability to regulate or store that energy, which you can essentially think of as, you know, whether that's looking at our fasted insulin, our fasted blood glucose and our overall tolerance of carbohydrates there, as well as food in general. And then from that position, yes, you know, Ben brings up a good point. Could we feel performance potentially add a bit of calories? Uh, some people colloquially would refer to that as like a recovery or reverse diet. And then through that point in time, are we then getting on the upswing where we get these increases in movement performance, we've now brought, you know, our calories back up to this place where we're in this other phase, you know, I would refer to that as more of a building or kind of break phase. Whereas, you know, when we're in a diet, you know, a dieted state or just calorie reduction and, and significant amounts of movement. And this is assuming that you are someone who's very diligent and deliberate with that. Obviously as a population, if we look at Western population, Western society, there are a lot of individuals who may be more inherently um, a little bit lazy for lack of a better word or, or less prone to movement. I think if that's the case, we just need to simply focus on getting folks a little bit more active and making better nutritional choices. But the listeners on this podcast, uh, for the most part are individuals who have gone through some form of maybe fitness program, nutrition program. They're not, uh, we're not quite at that novice level or completely, you know, we're not going from couch potato to, you know, uh, you know, full-blown kind of gym time overnight. So when we think of those individuals, we have to understand that if we don't actually periodize things, if we're not managing that stressor over time, we, we basically get to a state, and this is especially common, um, I think, when it comes to female metabolism, but we do see this in men as well, get to a place with lower calories and you keep increasing movement, I have nowhere to go from there. And it can be very frustrating because it's either you try to eat progressively less, which maybe isn't sustainable based on your hunger and your overall energy levels or your uh, lack of recovery from the gym. You know, so that's, that's kind of the biggest thing you kind of get into that position where either I can't subtract more calories or I can't necessarily move more. It's just not feasible during my day. If you have to work or you have kids or anything else like that. So you, you basically get to a place where you don't really have many more toggles from the food and nutrition perspective. So that's where we kind of have to back out of that and uh, position ourselves. And I think that's where zooming out and looking at stress and energy and how we can periodize that and intentionally create stimulus uh, as needed. And then also withdraw that from time to time to allow for recovery. We might be more sort of receptive to that subsequent stimulus after taking a break, or like you said, maybe we fuel performance and after whatever period is needed for fueling performance, we can then make another nutritional change and go from there. It doesn't have to be quite as static, but I think uh, a big point there is just regarding, you know, when I referred to sort of the anthropological component, it's just when we look at individuals who walk a lot or are very active or more tribal communities, 
if they were to use um, kind of one of the original methods for looking at energy expenditure, uh, especially outside the realm of a lab, what you see is that additive, what we would expect to be additive is not always additive, which means the adaptive physiology component of metabolism comes into play where we're getting these compensatory changes where our body's saying, Hey, this is a lot of energy output. Hey, this is, you know, maybe I'm not getting quite as much food and, and what do I need to do that's optimal for survival and preserving, you know, basically fertility and the ability for humans to continue to exist. And if, while as antiquated as that may seem, a lot of times we come back to these primal considerations when we're looking at our health, fitness, and nutrition journey. Sounds a lot like Dr. Bill Campbell's research on diet breaks, right? And, you know, I, I don't know that he views it quite the same way that we both articulated there, but it's this idea of like, put yourself at a deficit for some undisclosed amount of time. Once you see some type of metabolic shutdown, or you're seeing the decrease neat, um, then maybe take a diet break. And, and it, you know, people always ask how long it's very subjective, like, you know, how long till you get your performance back up or how long do you feel better or how long to you improve your heart rate variability? Um, I'd love to talk about heart rate variability if you use that and all in your, in your, um, decision-making process. But before we get to that, there's kind of three things that um, I'd like to hear your opinion on and how it influences um, the, the metabolic rate, how it influences diet decisions, and that's gut health, mitochondria, and insulin. And those are three big areas. And you can, you can approach it and, and attack it kind of in any way you want. And some people say, you know, if you have this particular set of microbes in your, in your, in your uh, gut, you're going to be more efficient metabolically. You're going to burn through more calories. Some people say, you know, if you have a different type of microbes, you're going to burn significantly less calories. Your body extracts more calories from the food you eat. Therefore, you can deposit more fat. So there's a ton of research in there. And then obviously mitochondria, we know that if you're eating too much, your mitochondria become sluggish versus fasting where you can improve mitochondria mitochondrial biogenesis. And then, you know, the third one, obviously insulin being uh, a huge topic of, of kind of controversy where some people say insulin doesn't matter. It's just calories in, calories out. And some people say like Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who I'm a big fan of says, you know, insulin is the worst thing to uh, fat loss and metabolism. And so I'm very curious to hear your opinion on those three. I know that's a lot, but if you could start unpacking those. Yeah. And a lot of good, good individuals reference there. So in terms of Bill Campbell, first kind of a nod to some of his research around, I think the five, two strategy. So looking at basically, um, over a seven day period, potentially we're in a deficit for five days that could be isocaloric and then moving to a two or day, two day, maybe maintenance calorie phase or slightly higher calorie refeeding window. Um, now that's not necessarily a cheat meal. It's not necessarily unhealthy food. It's just bringing your calories back to a slightly higher level. And so I think Bill is definitely trying to use some of the anecdotal things we've seen with coaches in the trenches who do work with clients, especially in that contest preparation phase or who maybe have to diet more intensely. So I definitely um, do follow what Bill is doing. And I think the more that we can look at that and chart that out over a period of time, I think we'll have a lot more information. So one, th one thing to say to that, sorry, before you move on is like, I had Bill on the show and he wasn't at all familiar with heart rate variability and the influences or potential uh, decision-making ability that heart rate variability could allow. And I thought that was very interesting because I usually will make decisions based on frequency of refeed, frequency of training and volume of training based on what I see in my heart rate variability. So if I see someone's heart rate variability trending down, I'm going to give them a break on the diet or increase those calories until I can see it coming back up. And then I know their body's kind of ready for performance. Is that a criteria or an objective measure you use to make that decision? So I, you know, I know Ben, we're very into things like the aura ring and some, some folks who maybe are on this 
you know, listen to this podcast, maybe you're in Aura or Whoop, or, um, you know, for example, I also, I'm wearing a Phoenix watch right now. So I'm getting a lot of different data points, but clients don't necessarily always have that. I think if we can use something like Aura, looking at readiness score, looking at HRV, even body temperature, um, I do use the body temperature feature on Aura quite a bit. Um, it does give you respiration as well as uh, some more sort of readiness and HRV metrics. You know, I would like to say that I have some sort of solidified framework for that, but I think it's still so new. I, I certainly do um, put some some value in it and some stock in it, but I think as far as like from a sort of wide reaching or broad teaching perspective, it would be hard to distill that, especially for the purposes of the podcast into having a few key action items or points uh, other than sort of self-experimentation. But I do certainly agree that your approach, especially based on your experience of being able to maybe toggle carbohydrate intake or toggle, you know, training intensity or training volume around HRV and giving the body, you know, sort of this ability to recover. Cause why are we sort of looking at HRV heart rate variability is really kind of relationship to stress, but also sort of our ability to balance the sort of sympathetic and parasympathetic. So I'm, I am looking at that. I do place some stock in that, but we also have to kind of look at you know, what are sort of those parasympathetic inputs that we have for clients? Is it maybe breathing or, you know, yoga post-training? Is it going for a walk? Maybe you have um, animals or, you know, you, you enjoy connecting with pets essentially, or you have community or family. I think there are different sort of parasympathetic sort of uh, stimulus for lack of a better word that we can sort of incorporate to do that. And we have to think, okay, well, how would carbohydrates influence that? Uh, this may address partially your insulin question as well as the HRV question is we can essentially use carbohydrates to induce what really, when we look at metabolism, we sort of have this fasted state and fed state. Now we might use something like fasting, intermittent fasting or ketogenesis to sort of mimic the fasted state. That's actually one of the reasons why um, it does work a little bit better for things like epilepsy. We're basically prolonging the fasted state there, but also in the fed state, we do get some additional benefits. Now, insulin can be counter-regulatory to cortisol. So someone with maybe too much HPA activation, that would be a concern there. They struggle to get into a parasympathetic state, or maybe they don't have all of those sort of habits, routines, and rituals that, you know, someone like Ben has at his disposal at training at such a high level and working on things mentally for such a long period of time. You know, we might use nutrition to essentially address some of the stress components, assuming now this might be in Ben, your example, you provided earlier, right? The individual who already went lower in calories, they lost the fat. They've been very active. Well, what did we do when and we lost that body fat. We enhanced insulin sensitivity. That's a wonderful thing. But also through that dieting process, we likely had a, quite a bit of HPA activation. It is stressor, you know, more movement. Uh, we essentially, you know, have sort of this prolonged uh, stress, even if it's just less food and more movement, that's still perceived as somewhat of a stressor by the body. So maybe in that state for that individual, I'm going to leverage something like carbohydrate, or as Ben said, maybe higher calories or a refeed or reduction in training volume, why can I do that? Why can I pull that lever? The reason I can pull that lever is because they established insulin sensitivity through dieting or through basically more movement. Um, and even just being in more of a parasympathetic state will help as well. Things like walking, there's some great, um, great research and observational data and studies around people just going for walks for two weeks, you know, in the Alps and all of a sudden starting to reverse signs of type two diabetes and things like that. So I think understanding that, you know, things like carbohydrates, things like walking or toggle to sort of influence stress and also by sort of proxy HRV that, uh, we certainly do have a lot of tools there. And Ben, I think it's great that you do that and educate people on that. I think as more individuals have 
Aura or Whoop, or the technology becomes a little bit more widely available and, and clients understand the need to invest in some type of technology like that, I think coaches will have sort of a greater need to establish guidelines and frameworks for decision-making around that. I think for me, I, I do look at those numbers, but I also try to connect it back to how does this connect to the stress response and how am I managing that stress response, whether it's through baseline activities in that person's life, or can I use nutrition and something like carbohydrate, uh, maybe after a training session to maybe bring someone back down and sort of manage that cortisol overall. Also, while ho hopefully present, uh, preventing some muscle protein breakdown, you know, incorporate some protein and, and improve muscle protein synthesis as well. So that kind of ties in the HRV and insulin part. Um, insulin, I certainly value insulin sensitivity. I look at fasting insulin. I look at fasted glucose on labs. But I think a confounding variable when it comes to insulin and blood sugar regulation is just the stress of our society and the way that people sort of carry out their day as well as their daily food choices. So, you know, we have to remember that there is a connection with, you know, insulin and cortisol sort of being counter-regulatory. We can end up in the state, well, if I'm if I take someone who's maybe that lean individual from earlier and I fast them too much, that, that may not be the best thing. But if I have someone who maybe has quite a bit of body fat storage and lives a relatively lower stress life, if you were to think of it as quadrants, essentially a graph, we might have someone who's high stress and overall high uh, sort of energy availability. That could be fat storage or potentially their diet was just excess in um, calorie laden foods or just unhealthy food decisions. That might be one end of the qu uh, quadrant. I might have someone who's low calorie, high stress. Well, the way that I can sort of leverage nutrition and nutritional principles as well as movement is going to be completely different in those two individuals because I understand that their sort of uh, likelihood or uh, I guess propensity to develop some form of insulin resistance is going to be much higher in the high stress, high energy category than someone who's maybe low stress, low energy, or even someone who is uh, consuming less energy and has less body fat stored on their frame. So I use energy kind of both in terms of net, you know, body fat accumulation, but also what's coming in through the diet uh, on a particular day, week, month, or, or year, looking at that from a client perspective. So I, I definitely value some of Ben, uh, other Ben, Ben Bickman's insights in regards to insulin and certainly do follow some of his research, but always trying to connect it back to some of the things we can use in the trenches and more sort of anecdotal information for coaches. In terms of HRV, I think it's going to continue to be a great tool. I think the recency of, you know, Aura's, I think had, um, really an amazing spurt or growth uh, in terms of popularity and, and accessibility for individuals. I think that's going to be really massive in terms of the impact on uh, clients understanding recovery needs and prioritizing that and, and sort of, you know, to use the shreds model, looking at the sleep and recovery component and energy level component. I think three of those aspects are really uh, highlighted well by the Oura Ring or a similar device that's tracking HRV. So I certainly think that's, that's super important. And then in terms of uh, insulin, I, I have to give sort of a it depends answer because depending on someone's metabolic profile, um, also, you know, we take someone doing a lot of intense resistance training, maybe they're also active and they walk quite frequently and they're not a high stress individual, that person may be able to tol tolerate a greater carbohydrate load than someone who is maybe slightly higher stress, doesn't resistance train, they're not creating sort of this um, ability or mechanism to uh, leverage some of the positive components of insulin. And while the sort of mitochondrial or cellular part, I can speak to mitochondria from the sense of what I see in terms of some of the hormonal adaptations and transformation. Uh, but before kind of going into that, I think when looking at the sort of that facet and fed state discussion, 
you know, uh, someone who had some great information on this, I believe it was Chris Masterjohn regarding um, sort of the fasted and fed state in terms of fed state enhancing glutathione production. Now he would certainly understand the mechanisms of action uh, just because he's very good at that sort of cellular level terminology and things like that. But my concern is, you know, in terms of overall understanding that we can sort of use each phase um, as sort of a season. So whether that, whether, whether that might be calorie reduction, whether that may be fasting, whether that's a period of trying to bring down insulin, uh, improving insulin sensitivity, I think, you know, it's, it's very valid to include that as a season of sort of, you know, nutrition. And then basically, you know, during that season, maybe there's a reduction in training intensity. But if I'm also pushing training intensity, training volume, effort, and movement, I might very well manage that stress better and enhance recovery better using some carbohydrates. So I think that's where we have to have a situational understanding of what does this macronutrient do in the body? What what sort of micronutrients come with that macronutrient? And then also understanding hormones and understanding the endocrine system and understanding adaptive physiology um, and some of the stuff that Bill is doing in terms of playing around with your calorie intake uh, on maybe, you know, over the course of uh, some form of prep or cycle or diet phase, I think is very, very important. So that last part, the uh, third prong that you asked was in in regards to mitochondria and really where I see I think you touch quite a bit on, um, you know, as you mentioned, you, you mentioned a little bit about biosynthesis. You mentioned a little bit in terms of um, just overall cellular health. You also mentioned just with unhealthy population obesity, but I want to kind of bring up a different but complementary viewpoint, which is in client transformation, when we have a high amount of stress and we are sort of in this um, sort of state of chronic dieting, or if we were to potentially just, you know, even if the stress is not from chronic dieting and something else, we have this influence of essentially cortisol on star protein, which is our steroidogenic transfer, uh, acute regulatory protein. That's what the star stands for. And when we have that issue, that can certainly, especially what I see in male clients who maybe follow that uh, for far too long, we end up in this state where maybe it's compromising natural androgen production, things like testosterone. Also, not to mention if we do go, um, very, very low carbohydrate, low insulin for a long period of time, something like carnivore. Anecdotally, what I have seen, and and this has kind of been corroborated by a few folks as well, is when you stay in that low carbohydrate state too long without any sort of cyclical intervention or seasons, you start to see an increase in things like sex hormone binding globulin, um, which basically is a binding protein that's going to influence the amount of free testosterone. So depending on your goal, if your goal is to build as much muscle as possible, maybe we can't stay in that state uh, super, super long. However, if perhaps you are in a state of very low SHBG, you have terrible insulin regulation, and maybe you're kind of off the charts there, A1C is high, fasted blood glucose is poor, we could leverage that diet style and lower carbohydrate to not only improve what's going on in terms of inflammation in the body, maybe improve what's going on in terms of insulin response, glycemic regulation. But now also I'm bringing up SHBG, which we don't want to be too low. And Dr. Serrano is a great person to um, sort of dive into on that. We don't want it too low or too high. It's kind of this Goldilocks thing, right? Because if we have zero binding proteins, that would be bad. Um, if, if it's, and we see that in women, for example, with uh, hyperandrogenism and PCOS, that's more driven, driven by that insulin dysregulation. So um, kind of tying together in terms of where I'm kind of looking at that dietary decision, the mitochondrial component is we have to understand that once again, coming back to stress and energy, those are things we can use to sort of influence client transformation. And those two different examples I gave, someone's going to need something entirely different, but understanding I could use a lower carbohydrate approach, uh, whether, you know, pick, pick whatever popular option you'd like to go with understanding that I can use something like that to get a specific physiological response. Um, and that there are sort of consequences to that, but I might not want to stay there forever. And that's where I think 
kind of combining this information and synthesizing it is something that I really try to do and why I follow people like Ben and why I follow people, um, you know, like Chris and why I follow people like Dr. Eric Serrano and things like that. And he was one of, you know, your early guests, uh, when it was muscle expert and he did yeah, an that was an amazing episode. So I go to his seminars and stuff and check him out. So he has some really great things on SHBG. He'll mention it in terms of mortality and, and different considerations there. So we probably don't want it too high. We probably don't want it too low. Um, so that's kind of more when I'm uh, touching on the physiological components. Now, in terms of mitochondria, I'll just kind of leave you guys with that point regarding star protein, just understanding that yes, mitochondria important for just overall, um, overall health, but also connecting that sort of these cellular components, com- connecting it back to sort of this big, pic- big picture level of hormonal function and endocrinology and physiology and how that's going to influence our physical goals. Because someone who wants to build muscle that's struggling with their testosterone levels and androgen production, that's going to be a long sort of difficult uh, ride to sort of, you know, accomplish those goals that they're trying to accomplish. So that would be kind of my perspective on those three. I realized it was kind of a kind of ran the gamut of- No, that's great. But- yeah, I love that explanation, Sam. That was great. And there's two things in there that I'd love to, to pull out, and they seem to be related. Is you, you mentioned the term seasonality or cyclical uh, approaches to things. So, you know, maybe it's useful to do a, an acute um, carnivore status. Maybe it's it's useful to do an acute elevated um, carbohydrate uh, phase. And I also want you to speak to you know the seasonality of uh, of the year, ultimately, right? So your beliefs around um, kind of circadian biology when it comes to a full year cycle. Do you change the way people eat in the summertime relative to the winter um, in accordance with sunlight exposure, right? So there's been, I don't know if I'm sure you're familiar, some data suggesting there's a greater insulin utilization in the summertime because of sun, uh, infrared light exposure, improves insulin sensitivity, improves testosterone production. So I'm curious if you ever take that into consideration. Obviously, that's a very high level thing. It wouldn't be something that you would take into account with most people, but curious your thoughts on, on that and just the cyclical nature of all dieting. For sure. So this, I'll touch on the cyclical nature of dieting. And also uh, what's really interesting about what you just mentioned in terms of light exposure is I recently was diving into some things on that realm with vitamin D and kind of looking at it, um, sometimes low vitamin D levels as a proxy for inflammation and, and those connections there. And sometimes what we see with hormonal dysregulation. So super fascinating that you kind of brought that up. Um, I think with most clients where I'm implementing what I call the seasons of nutrition, which is literally designed to explain that sort of seasonality, it's going to depend on where were they when they essentially uh, arrived with their coach. Because a lot of what I do now is essentially uh, mentoring coaches and how to sort of layer these approaches into client transformation. So if someone's been in a diet phase and they did so successfully, I don't need to bring them into this phase or season where we are burning through physiological bandwidth again. Really what we need to do is prioritize recovery or essentially what I would refer to as a break or build phase. And then once they've sort of reestablished this homeostasis, whether that's in terms of biofeedback or hormonal function, as well as uh, potentially just getting to healthy body composition, we may then, and and the performance or output that they're really seeking, we may then bring them back into a diet again and and find that it's okay to burn through that bandwidth. Um, and, And we're kind of toggling it's very similar, I guess you could think to the idea of hormesis and periodic sort of stressors and exposing the body to that and allowing it to adapt. So I do implement the seasonality. I would say that from a practicality perspective, Ben, if I was not working with a higher level athlete or a very, very serious lifestyle client who really 
uh, is willing to mold their life around transformation. I just think in terms of uh, culture and holiday, like just the way that people sort of operate in today's modern age, that the circadian nutrition concept and the actual adherence and sustainability behind that, I think would be reserved for a select group of clients. That's just my experience based on coaches working with lifestyle clients. However, with athletes or potentially people, you know, I, I have a guy who is just very into trying, he will just try uh, just about anything. And I could see something like that where he would be totally willing to do that. But we also have to think what other components are driving, uh, like you mentioned, insulin and uh, carbohydrate utilization. Is it because when it's sunny, we're actually outside more and we're moving more? Or is it, you know, uh, or were we looking at this solely from the mechanistic perspective of, well, I got sun exposure, there was vitamin D synthesis, and that had a change on um, basically with vitamin D being a hormone that influenced what was going on with my physiology. So I think it's, you could look at it either direction and try to structure it that way. I would say in terms of um, the efficacy of that for clients and sort of the mainstream population, I think would be difficult to implement and have concrete data around. But I, I do see where you're coming from, from an evolutionary perspective, anthropological perspective, and that there might be some value to that uh, for folks who can adhere to it and who enjoy um you know, sort of the seasonality or these toggles that we're talking about. It's the same sort of concept that, you know, if we were looking at sort of hunter gatherers or even foraging and what, and what might be available during certain times of year, there are definitely folks who sort of refer to these times as kind of like a metabolic winter of sorts. And, um, definitely would be interesting to have uh, a longer sort of observational period in modern society of seeing if we were to if we were able to improve people's health markers following that. But I do think we have some confounding variables in terms of, you know, is it simply the change in the season and the weather, or is it because of what people are doing when that weather changes? Right. Yeah. So, um, I think that's a big thing. Plus we also have the compounding variable. We have gyms now we can work out inside versus previously we're only exercising outdoors. Also with the way sort of modern agriculture and food production works, you know, things are available you know, at times of the year that otherwise never would have been in human history. So right. I think we certainly have some confounding variables and challenges there, but I, I do like sort of your alternative perspective on how someone might approach that. Dr. Andrew Huberman just released a podcast recently that's worth listening to on uh, hormones, specifically mentioning um, the seasonality of dopamine, testosterone, and inflammation in the wintertime as it decreases, sorry, vitamin D, uh, dopamine, testosterone, as they are decreasing in the in the winter time because of less sunlight exposure, therefore uh, lowering potentially lowering insulin sensitivity was was super interesting, worth listening to. Uh, that's kind of where that thought came up for me, and I tend to follow more of a ketogenic approach in the winter time. When, as you said, I'm definitely moving less, I'm definitely getting less sunshine. Um, and it's almost like I use it as like a metabolic reset. And I may do it for six weeks. I may do it for three months, uh, depending how my body composition is, depending how my stress levels are, depending how my performance is. Um, but I'll usually implement it at, at some extent uh, over those winter months. And I, and I think, you know, it seems to be a very useful approach. And then in the summertime, I'm really cranking up the carbohydrates, dropping the fats a little bit. And, um, you know, it seems to be a effective cyclical approach. I feel great. My brain seems to work well. So kind of leveraging that, um, that, uh, message there into, uh, maybe your thoughts on a ketogenic approach and how much you use that with people. And if you see any benefit or if, is it just a fad? So I think one thing that you've done, I think that you try to do through your content, right. Is maybe when you're in ketosis or you're using things like olive oil, right. You're taking concepts from maybe a Mediterranean diet style or what we know about different sort of fatty acids and 
also what's wrong with the standard American diet and, and following through on a higher fat diet that includes monounsaturated fats, potentially DHA and EPA, uh, maybe improved omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. I think the problem we see in Western society is folks see uh, ketogenesis and rather than viewing it as a tool and how to still make healthy food choices within that framework, you know, we end up basically either with sort of inappropriate ratios or inappropriate food decisions. There's a big difference between having a combination of animal fats and some plant fats from something like, um, you know, good quality olive oil or avocado or macadamia nut oil, or not like a lower carbohydrate nut. If you were to use that in a ketogenic approach, I think just the overall, um, sort of profile that you're creating in your body as a result of that is entirely different than someone who is going to take that. I'm going to eat as much bacon and cheese as possible in, in ketosis. And so I, I would say there's variables there where, you know, it, once again, it comes down to, yes, maybe I have this sort of macronutrient percentage that I need to actually get into ketosis, but what food choices am I actually utilizing to optimize that state of lower carbohydrate uh, and, and certainly I think I've, I've seen folks who really enjoy it and like it for the cognitive perspective, the studies that we see are primarily around sort of epilepsy and neurological conditions there. I think it's definitely a tool, um, some, some folks anecdotally for autism and, and other sort of spectrum related conditions that it could be a valuable tool there. So, uh, I'm certainly not against the situational use of it. I would just say the modern sort of, uh, bastardized for lack of a better word approach to ketosis and not making, not viewing it as how do I fill out this fat with quality foods and maybe, you know, doing that with grass fed meats, maybe you consume some wild caught fish or, um, a good quality olive oil. And, and even looking at things like that, that's where we could take something like, how do we take this idea of ketosis and maybe data that we have like from a Predimed study or something like that, or looking at, you know, the Mediterranean diet and understanding the role of monounsaturated fats, as well as omega threes, how could we carry that over and sort of fuse that and blend that to create an optimal diet st style for some someone who needs to sort of, um, reduce carbohydrates or maybe feels that they thrive best on that sort of state. Now I would say one of the reasons that I think that ketogenic approach works for you during the winter, you said you're moving less. It might be a lower physical stress period versus intense training bouts. And so I think when we're kind of in this sort of eat less, exercise less phase, what we did is we changed both toggles. It wasn't high stress. And I also went down to eating no carbs. If you're doing a lot of glycolytic exercise, or we see people in CrossFit trying to follow keto, or, or maybe people with very high volume sort of bodybuilding training, I, I think we do sort of see a little bit of compromised performance there. And once again, bringing it back to what fat are you using to actually achieve this sort of ketogenic state and how are you sort of balancing that out in terms of your overall food choices? So that's, I, I think my biggest issue with it is more so the lack of education and appropriate, um, focus once again on micronutrition. And then also it's not just the grams of fat, but also what is, what is sort of within that food, right? It's, it's like such a, I think, overlooked component of, of really any diet style. And, you know, you could be sort of the, uh, uh, I was trying to think of sort of the, the college example of like the vegan dieter who's quote unquote vegan, but not necessarily eating plant-based, right? They're just consuming a lot of carb like starchy carbohydrates or things like that. Um, and then you can have the same thing happen with someone who's in a ketogenic status. They're not necessarily making those optimal fat choices. So I think, you know, where I might use something like that would be if someone was very low stress, lots of walking, maybe some yoga and, and, uh, otherwise very low lifestyle stress and they enjoy eating that way. And they truly enjoy dietary fat and they enjoy their protein, um, with maybe a very small amount of carbohydrate and plant foods there. I think, 
you could use it as, as, as like a brief phase or toggle, as you mentioned. Uh, but I do think for a big part of the population, there's like this adherence component, right? And then also they sort of, they deviate and use the high fat as a reason to sort of make poor choices that are otherwise already happening in a standard American diet. But now we've just increased our most calorically dense macronutrient by a significant amount. And then now we're increasing, you know, that food source as well, potentially something that's not very vitamin mineral dense or doesn't contain, you know, things like omega-3 fatty acids and stuff. I interrupt this podcast to bring you a special message from Muscle Intelligence. Yes, ladies and gents, on May 7th through 9th, 2021, we are doing a live and in-person training at the MI40 gym in Tampa for a very small number of people. We are, be, we are going to be going deep on everything there is to know about building maximum muscle, particularly in the gym. We're going to be going through exercise execution, exercise mastery, programming, uh, stress, how to make decisions on exercises, how to make decisions on how much volume, and ultimately how to match your training and nutrition to maximize results. This is a very, very small number of people, and I would love it if you would come, uh, if you're interested, uh, you can email me directly at ben at benpakulski.com and someone will get back to you with details. You can also check out mi40gym.com and uh, check out the course curriculum as well as sign up there directly. So again, this may be the only one we do in 2021, but it is happening May 7th through the 9th in the MI40 Gym in Tampa. We would love to see you there. Enjoy the podcast. I think you sort of indirectly answered this, but I'd like to have you speak to the relevance or significance of the ratios of omega-3, 6, and 9. And, and I guess I said you, you briefly kind of alluded to that, but how much of an influence do you think that has on cellular health, insulin sensitivity, uh, inflammation, and, and you know, uh, all of ultimately cellular function? Yeah, it's very interesting. So I've sort of uh, been diving into a little bit of this research. I'm very curious uh, in terms of like DHA and EPA. We know DHA is very important for brain health and overall cognitive function. Uh, we look at when that DHA especially comes in some form of phospholipid, uh, for example, like krill. I, I, I'm really curious to see if we get any additional research there. When we look at, I believe it's the reduce it study that's going on right now with a very high EPA fish oil um, and, and that sort of combined with certain other cardiovascular therapies for folks who are, are struggling with maybe their cholesterol and triglycerides. We certainly do see a change in lab work and some of those um, CVD metrics, those cardiovascular disease metrics and inflammatory metrics. I think we do see improvements when there's, you know, incorporating high quality oils like that. Um, I don't necessarily try to get, you know, you could use something like an omega quant and try to quantify your actual omega-3 to omega-6 status. But a lot of times you can look, if you were to look at a uh, nutrition protocol on a piece of paper, you could probably, you know, if you're well-versed in nutrition, start to get to a point where you understand where these dietary fats are coming from. And other than potentially in women incorporating, you know, the only intentional sort of omega-6 added in other than what's already coming in your food might be something like an evening primrose or a borage oil for the gamma linoleic acid component. But really um, on the DHA and EPA side, I am a huge advocate of, you know, having higher quality oils there and primarily DHA for the cognitive component. But we do see with fish oil, um, the evidence seems to support the reduction in triglycerides, which for someone with metabolic syndrome, that would be really a pivotal uh, sort of turning point in helping them get healthier. One of the guys I learned from early in my career was Charles Poliquin, who I'm sure you're familiar with. And he advocated like acute phases of mega dosing fish oils. Any thoughts and perspective on that? So I have heard that, that Charles has used, used that approach. I think 
if you have someone who's willing to experiment and incorporate that, I do sort of come back to the feasibility perspective of a lot of the clients I've worked with over the years where, you know, we have to look at, okay, who did Charles work with after a certain period of time and his notoriety working with elite level athletes who likely have the ability to get these supplements and, and utilize very high doses, similar to some of his lower carbohydrate post-workout protocols, um, whether it be glutamine or glycine or otherwise, which I think we can take sort of nuggets from that approach and say, Hey, why did this work? Or what about this, um, led him to have the anecdotal experience that we could then apply to a client. I do worry that, you know, even getting clients to invest in quality supplementation can be a little bit of a challenge already to where doing that acute high dose sort of fish oil. I might try to pair something like if I'm really worried about insulin sensitivity in the case that you sort of proposed with Charles, well, what else do we know from complementary alternative medicine that might be a good adjunct to that fish oil or DHA and EPA? Maybe we look at something like berberin, right? Where we can sort of leverage that to improve overall function. And maybe between the two of those, we get sort of these complementary benefits versus uh, solely, you know, having someone invest in a significant amount of fish oil that maybe they can't afford. So I, I try to always bring it back to the practicality perspective. I certainly value um, having those high quality oils. I, I think it would be cool to have more information on those acute dosing periods. But I also try to always keep in perspective that Charles did work with a very elite population and could really micromanage and control everything. Whereas a lot of times with uh, the everyday person that, that might, we might lose a little bit of efficacy there. Totally. I tend to do about one gram per meal during those acute phases. That's relatively simple. It's, you know, a couple of capsules and relatively simple to adhere to. But again, you're absolutely right. With most clients, it's not realistic. Um, so one thing I want to talk about that's kind of a bit of a tangent shift is uh, I get a lot of people who come to me to build muscle and they say, hey, you know, I'm just going to keep jamming in more calories and they stop building muscle, right? They're getting to the realm of 5,000, 6,000 calories a day. So as a bodybuilder, you know, I, I followed that paradigm for a long time. And there's certainly a point that I experienced where um, no matter how many calories you try to jam in, the muscle just doesn't grow. There's a point where, you know, this is as much as my body wants to absorb and assimilate. And then anything beyond that just tends to go to fat. So I'd like to talk to you about any suggested strategies you have to increase absorption and assimilation. So, uh, you know, there's a certain point where, you know, let's say you're eating 4,500 or 5,000 calories a day and, uh, you know, you're absorbing as much as you possibly can, putting up the calories puts on fat. I like to advocate um, trying to get more out of the calories that you're putting in rather than putting in more calories. I don't know if you have a thought on that versus uh, any, any approaches that you would suggest to implement there. I do think we've hit with every individual, there's sort of this threshold point of uh, digestive distress and we can no longer push calories without a bit of a break. And I think one thing that's we do emphasize in the diet industry and even in bodybuilding culture and fitness culture is the idea of a diet break on essentially the way down when we're subtracting food. And for some reason, I'm not sure why there's not really much out there in the way of taking a break when adding food, right? Could we, could we pause for a minute? Am, am I holding at a good place? I'm certainly not going to lose a significant amount of muscle. Maybe I'm not in an intense sort of diet, but once again, this is where we could leverage. Okay. What have we been doing by pushing 4,500, 5,000 calories? We're certainly in a fed state. That's for sure. We certainly have that insulin signaling going on. So maybe I need to counter that with a bit of the fasted state physiology. And so that could be, a small intermittent fast, I might say to a athlete, 
And this could be anyone pushing food, not necessarily just a bodybuilder, but you'll also have individuals just with their caloric burn. Um, they're pushing a lot of food where, Hey, you normally sleep in on Sundays. Why don't we just push back that first meal? Let's delay your eating there. Don't worry about pushing the food in yet. Let's try to get certain baseline nutrients, but we're not really going to have this sort of high, high, high day. And you give the digestive tract a bit of a break and the ability to sort of um, recuperate because if you're constantly just pounding food, um, and we see this a lot and especially making similar food choices all the time, we do end up with digestive distress. So I think taking the time either to do a proper sort of digestive protocol, or maybe it's a mini sort of four hour, five hour approach of certain removing certain foods, um, rotating certain foods, maybe spending some time, uh, repairing the gut. That's certainly fine. But I think one of the best strategies to mitigate that from happening is if you are pushing calories very high, having periods where maybe there's a small intermittent window where you're not actually eating food because you have been pushing essentially the opposite physiology for a very long period of time. Uh, like Ben said, at 4,500 to 5,000 calories, you are 100% signaling your body with this sort of fed state physiology. So what I would do is I would just kind of shift it on its head and, uh, you know, potentially use fasting there. Uh, you could do protein sparing modified fast. You could completely fast. You could intermittent fast. Uh, potentially maybe we just do a full sort of diet break, even if you're not really dieting, maybe you're in more of a mass gain phase, but maybe it's a break from your caloric surplus, if you will, or even a reverse. And I've seen the same thing from a psychological perspective, even with female clients trying to add food, maybe it's not a digestive issue. Maybe it's a psychological component of I've never eaten this much food before. And I think there's nothing wrong with taking that diet break strategy and applying it to a period where there's higher food consumption, uh, both for the physiological and psychological advantages that we may get from that. But I think the biggest thing there, Ben, is like maybe taking a period of sort of dedicated uh, devotion and, and sort of gut repair, and then also um, allowing just a bit of reprieve after a period of like feeding so many calories. And, and obviously just that absorption and digestion can just be really uh, taxing after a certain point. Yeah. I tend to take on the belief that most systems can't absorb or break down, you know, to call it eight to 10 ounces of protein every two to three hours. It's just going to start to accumulate. So what I found works really well and love to hear your opinion is um, hydrochloric acid mixed with proteolytic enzymes to really increase the breakdown, increase the, the, the digestion ultimately of proteins. And as you also alluded to earlier, chewing, right? Instead of just kind of throwing down food, the act of chewing exposes more surface area of the, of the food itself to those enzymes and acids to actually allow it to break down and assimilate. I think most people negate the fact that chewing is like an imperative part of this digestion assimilation process, just hammering down food in a rushed way and don't ever absorb and assimilate that food. I'd love to hear any thoughts and perspective you have on that. Yeah. So I think chewing huge issue as well as just the state in which we eat our food. And I even catch myself time, uh, catch myself at times in my schedule, you know, I'm rushed or I'm standing up or I'm not sitting and really getting back to the idea of a meal, as opposed to this, just like eating on the go all the time. I certainly like enzymes because, uh, of the efficacy combined with the safety. And it's also a relatively affordable supplement for a lot of people. And uh, enzymes seem to have a lot of benefit, especially if you do tend to not chew your food enough. Um, other things that could help in those higher calorie phases, phases which Ben, I, know, I think you've mentioned on the podcast before, would be things like, um, you know, maybe it's a ground meat, like maybe it's a ground bison or a grass-fed beef option uh, that's not going to require quite as much chewing. You can still chew there, but um, you know, we're getting a little bit of uh, 
a little bit of a break for the gut in that sense versus maybe a whole steak or something, or maybe even moving, you know, to a different protein variety. That's going to be a little bit easier to break down, but I think that's great. And then also HCL, sometimes we do see issues with that sometimes bile acids as well. Um, so maybe, you know, it's, it's a little bit of HCL and the enzymes, as you mentioned, to support digestion, but usually we got to look at the sort of foundational, you know, habits and components of what does this person's sort of meal preparation look like and how are they sort of consuming this meal? And are we actually giving our body opportunity to digest? Could we maybe add in a walk? Is it, you know, related to our meal timing or the food choice that we're making potentially just does not align best with, you know, our bodies and, and our digestive feedback, which is why I include that in shreds and in biofeedback. Um, so really a host of factors you could look at there, but I do think uh, both enzymes and HCL can be used situationally. Now, if you add HCL to someone who doesn't necessarily need that stomach acid support or is not on a high protein diet, that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. So you could always utilize um, either uh, a betaine HCL challenge or doing something like a baking soda test to determine if you have a little bit of uh, lower stomach acid. So essentially if you use the baking soda and you don't burp, um, we would know, okay, stomach acid is really low there. Um, and that's a bit of an issue. So adding the HCL during periods of higher protein, I think that's totally fine, especially if it's needed. And then digestive enzymes, I really like for a variety of protocols, whether it's the average individual, the athlete, or someone who's on more of a dedicated sort of, uh, has a bit of GI sensitivity, or maybe we're working through some IBS or something like that. I think there's definitely validity to having some enzymatic support there too. Glad you brought that up. So one thing I always did as an athlete was pre-contest was always steak and chicken. I'd eat the whole, you know, whole steak. Whereas off season, when I was trying to push calories, I would always go to those ground meat sources. Cause I know it's, it's kind of pre-chewed, right? It's just, it's broken down, requires less. Usually you're eating faster. You're trying to consume more food. And I think that's a good little hack for people out there trying to get in more calories and ultimately probably save time and maybe a little bit digestive uh, distress. So um, moving along from there, we talked a little bit in the beginning about micronutrients and, you know, I think that the gamut is long and we could probably talk for hours about micronutrients, but I want to know if there's anything that stands out to you as maybe the most important foundational supplements that everyone should be taking. Um, I know that's a hard question to answer, but if there's anything you say, Hey, these, these ones tend to be really common amongst my clients or something that's maybe often overlooked. So I, I want to give the audience some tools to sort of equip them with the ability to make a bit of, you know, some of these decisions on their own and also provide my opinion and what I see as well. So certainly in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to women's health and thyroid, I, I do see um, some issues with selenium. Uh, not that I'm not saying that's the most important. I'm just listing, listing one that may be an issue there. Um, obviously we have foundations foundational vitamins and minerals and you know, zinc is obviously very important um, as well. So, and magnesium, especially. So, um, you know, magnesium and selenium can be super important. Selenium on the thyroid side, I think, especially in chronic dieters, and it's not that everyone is just sort of eating popping Brazil nuts every day. So sometimes the food choices there, we do see a little bit of a potential deficiency, but the tool or hack that I wanted to sort of give the audience would be to, you know, look at something like chronometer or chronometer. I, I always sort of mispronounced the, the name there, but, you know, take like a three day food log or your most commonly eaten meals and place it to get the micronutrient data, not just the macronutrient data, but that tracker is going to be a little bit um, more expansive or like a nutrition data website that includes the micronutrient totals and look at your favorite foods and, and have an honest conversation with yourself about, do I need to backfill? You know, do I need a B complex vitamin? Do I need potassium? Do I potentially need magnesium? Um, I found, you know, magne magnesium tends to be very, very helpful, especially, um, when we look at sort of the parasympathetic state, when we look at rest and recovery, and as well as uh, even for women and overall menstrual health, uh, magnesium 
and vitamin B6 can be very important as well. So uh, really it's hard to pick like a favorite. It would be like picking amongst my children. So for the audience, I would say use a tracker, use something beyond just your basic MyFitnessPal and try and go in there and get a bit more micronutrient data and then assess for yourself. How can I potentially make a quality supplement choice that's, you know, uh, third-party tested and, and lab tested GMP facility uh, and, and non-proprietary blends and kind of, kind of go in there and say, all right, well, I'm, I'm clearly, I either need to make a food selection that would backfill sort of the inadequacies I have here. Or if I know that these are just my favorite foods, how can I sort of address this from a supplemental perspective? So um, that would be sort of my tip there as well as some micronutrients that I think are lacking. Definitely see it a lot on the mineral side um, and just in general with vitamins and minerals, just between soil quality, as well as uh, our overall food quality. I think more and more people are actually needing to get these micronutrients from supplements. And then with your minerals, just looking at the actual forms of those minerals. So not just like an oxide version, um, you know, Ben, I know you're a big fan of sort of your different forms of magnesium there, but when we look at something that's maybe uh, a, a glycinate or something like that versus just your sort of magnesium oxide, we're getting different benefits there. Mag three and eight or uh, the magnesium that's bound to L-taurine, maybe we're getting a little bit more sort of neurological benefits as opposed to some of the uh, maybe you know, with, with a more broad spectrum magnesium or some of the basic functions of magnesium, maybe if it's a citrate or orotate, maybe it's helping more with that digestive motility and having more of a laxative effect or potentially even helping with something like restless leg syndrome. So understanding that sort of our, our forms are going to matter there, but kind of a hack for your minerals, looking for those ATE endings. So things like glycinate um, can be very helpful. Uh, that's just one example, but typically if you look at sort of the end of that last word and, and sort of that um, tail end of that, you'll be able to make better, uh, supplement purchasing decisions based on a quality. That's a little bit, or basically a product that's higher quality and more bioavailable. Very cool. Any suggestions on sleep protocols supplementally? Um, obviously we know about the skating rhythm stuff. We know about temperature, but any suggestions that you could make to our audience about how to optimize sleep? Certainly. So we can look at this a few ways. Uh, we could go down the adaptogenic herb sort of category, or we could leverage amino acids. I think on the amino acid side, there's some good evidence for things like glycine and theanine. So glycine, uh, also has some cool sort of hypothermic effects as well. So if you have people who get very hot or they struggle with their body temperature and maybe they're keeping a cold room, maybe they're trying, you know, use a chili pad or something along those lines, you know, glycine is a relatively affordable supplement. And if you're eating primarily muscle meats, um, you are not really getting as much glycine anyways. So you could simply add um, either like three grams of glycine to start from an L-glycine powder, or uh, you also have things like collagen that are going to contain a bit more glycine in there as well, uh, balancing that out. Now, if you are consuming bone broth or you're having more of this sort of full spectrum um, of, of eating more nose to tail, there's a chance you might have more glycine in there, but it can be helpful to sort of balance out that amino acid there. So glycine can be helpful. Theanine, you know, phosphatoserine, all of those could be potential tools. That's more, um, I guess, less on the herbal side. I think there's some great, uh, at least what I've seen anecdotally using things like ashwagandha, uh, other herbals and complementary alternative medicine that can help as well as potentially taking things in the morning that are establishing more of a healthy stress response, healthy circadian rhythm that are going to help us uh, sleep a little bit better at night. And then for those caffeine, uh, folks who are, who are kind of relying on caffeine or maybe train later in the day or having caffeine in their pre-workout, something uh, like Avodia or Rudicarpine is basically going to help with that caffeine clearance. So you could potentially leverage that herbal there to help um, if you're in an overstimulated state. So maybe a cocktail there as you're using, you know, the Rudicarpine or Avodia, uh, it's got, you know, all, all of those sort of 
Chinese herbal names have a very, very interesting pronunciation. But if you guys kind of go down that rabbit hole, you'll see what I'm talking about. You could potentially leverage something if you don't want to necessarily be sleepy, but you need to get into a parasympathetic state, you know, rather than pushing something, you know, like your, your melatonin or kind of more conventional sleep remedies or jumping right to, you know, taking sort of supplemental, uh, approach to neurotransmitters, you could uh, take more of an approach of using something like uh, your glycine, your sensorial ashwagandha, your L-theanine, your phosphatidylserine. None of those should make you inherently sleepy, but maybe you consume, you know, that post-workout for training later in the day, helping you bring back kind of that parasympathetic state. And then when you do go to go to sleep, you're not quite as uh, hyped up or uh, kind of seeing that sort of dysregulated or inverted circadian rhythm that we see so often. So that would be more the supplemental side. There might be other ones that I'm certainly missing there. I think some people really like 5-HTP or L-tryptophan magnesium would be um, a good option. And that post-workout cocktail, you could sort of use magnesium, theanine, and taurine or uh, magnesium and theanine, uh, maybe even a B6 in there as well. That could be an option. And then as far as the sleep routines and sort of rituals, obviously having some form of uh, dedicated schedule where you're sort of devoted to sort of prepping and winding down for sleep. Uh, while I think blue light has gotten a lot of attention, we have to remember it's not just the act of putting these glasses on, but what sort of emotions and sort of psychological stimulus am I receiving from my device? Is it a stressful work email? Is it potentially, you know, some form of drama related to social media? Is it something that's going to cause you angst and anxiety? That's not what we want to be consuming before bed. So that's why I list things like even, you know, walking or breathing or reading, uh, hydrotherapy, time with family, any of, any of those things can be great. Uh, music, just kind of taking something that you enjoy and, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, what anyone else does. It could be what's best for you and your sleep schedule, but putting that in and then making sure you have that dark room uh, and and leveraging that. And that's where I also like, you know, for folks who struggle with heat, kind of using that chili pad. And that's kind of where the tying in the glycine came in as well as it seems to mildly, uh, I think there's some information on that in terms of having a little bit of that hypothermic effect. Interesting. Have you ever experimented with ketone esters for sleep? I have not. Uh, yeah. So would that be like your BHB salts yeah uh yeah so esters ketone esters i use ketone aid so i've seen probably a 50 percent increase in deep sleep from a very small amount of ketone esters before bed and pretty much all of my clients across the board who lack adequate deep sleep it's been a pretty awesome hack worth worth experimenting with okay and, yeah. and on the another thing too would be we didn't really talk about peptides but i know uh we've Certainly, I think we share a mutual interest there in peptides and how we can sort of mimic uh, some of the endogenous functions that go on in the body and, and sort of cascades that happen naturally. So we do have certain things, you know, whether it is sort of leveraging, um, you know, growth hormone pathway or leveraging more of something like a Delta sleep inducing peptide, which is a little bit more targeted. Some people have a great response to that. I've seen some people for whatever reason, don't seem quite as sensitive, but yep. I, I've certainly seen aura data to support that the use of something like a Delta sleep inducing peptide could actually support overall sleep uh, depth. And Are you doing that. that in the morning or in the night? So the data I've seen both personally and with clients would be the Delta sleep inducing peptide at night. Uh, okay. But I have heard of folks sort of doing it in the morning. And now mm. the confounding variable is there's obviously folks who inject it versus the nasal spray. So I think it's, uh, I'm kind of curious and having, uh, so I think, you know, recently was in Florida and able to tour 
uh, Wells Compounding Pharmacy and get a little bit more idea of what they're doing. And so uh, having more sort of pharmaceutical access to peptides certainly plays a really large role in the ability to experiment and have reliable experiments. So I wouldn't want to like sort of misspeak for anyone listening to the podcast, but um, there was a acute period where using that Delta sleep inducing peptide at night was helpful uh, for for me, at least in, in making sure that that aura sleep score and overall deep sleep was a little bit longer than it may have been otherwise without the peptide. Yeah, I like tesamorelin as well. Most people are using epimorelin or sermorelin. Tesamorelin seems to work really, really well for improving sleep. I don't know if you've experimented with that, but it's worth a try. Yeah, all of the different uh, growth hormone secretagogues and you know, growth hormone releasing peptides are super fascinating and sort of the different cocktails you can come up with with different targeted actions. I think that's one thing we're going to learn a lot more of over the next you know, maybe five to 10 years on the peptide front. And we certainly know a lot already, but I think as we have more use cases, we could start to see, you know, um, for example, some of those on uh, more the growth hormone peptide side, we see things like uh, uses for lipodystrophy and, and sort of uh, body fat accumulation. And then we see the, the fr peptide fragments as well. So um, definitely very, you know, very interesting. I'll have to maybe try that out in terms of the, what you've seen with the testimonial uh, and, and kind of the overall, and is that in the morning or in the evening or how are you sort of? I do, I do it in the evening. I prefer it in the evening. Um, it's really unfortunate to see how the FDA keeps shutting down the peptide companies, right? There was some, you know, we had Ryan Smith on recently who was previous owner of TaylorMade and they're just shutting down all of what they could, the biological um, peptides, which is, you know, I think he said anything over 41 amino acids gets shut down, which is really sad because there were so many potential implications uh, for positive health outcomes. And uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate to see that that unfortunately is, is the path right now. Cause I mean, the things we were seeing anecdotally and in research um, for, you know, this wide array of peptides just seems to keep getting shut down. Yeah. And that's, what's, what's super interesting. I mean, I, I definitely like peptides. I think even there was a recent literature review of thymosin that came out in December and there was not only data for things like cancer and hepatitis and, you know, uh, basically those medical use cases, but also as a adjunct to uh, coronavirus vaccine. And yeah. what happened was someone was actually sort of, uh, and, and really where I got most excited about thymosin, as well as even things like uh, BPC or LL37 is using those in tandem for autoimmune cases and, and situations where you have to deal with inflammation in the immune system. Uh, so, that could vary from autoimmune thyroid, or maybe even just some sort of inflammatory state, maybe even something like endometriosis, where I think there might be um, some validity to potentially using that sort of peptide alternative medicine there uh, mm -hmm. as, as a therapeutic modality for improving those cases. And what's really unfortunate is people will make these big claims about peptides. And I think the issue with thymosin is people were then sort of pushing that this was essentially uh, like your, your panacea for coronavirus, which, uh, you know, if someone would have just sort of kept their mouth shut and, and just kind of gone the normal way, it's like, would have been better for everyone in the health and fitness industry. So we could leverage that for some of these more complex cases where, you know, we do need to sort of use something like a peptide as opposed to maybe a pharma, uh, pharmaceutical sort of, or pharmacological sort of intervention there, uh, or cocktail that potentially a client then becomes reliant on, or, uh, really just masks it as opposed to getting the root cause of why the issue is coming. I mean, in the first place. And, and I think peptides are great when used in conjunction with nutrition, training, and full body systems understanding to getting the root cause of an issue and then supporting your body's uh, sort of endogenous production and also uh, sort of this creation of different cascades that support health naturally. Um, and, and like you said, it's, it is really a shame that a lot of that is going on because I think there's a lot of promise there. And it was an area that I was super excited about. 
Yeah, Sam, you said uh, a lot of incredibly valuable things on this podcast. Thank you very much. And you also mentioned you are uh, launching a mentorship for coaches coming up. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I have a nutrition and metabolism specialization for coaches, which is essentially a hybrid between uh, your sort of uh, course experience and having live mentorship access to both your peers uh, and an instructor. So my goal was to create a controlled collaborative learning environment where coaches can interact and talk about case studies and client issues while also having sort of the foundational principles and education that they need to uh, really accelerate their career. I'm a firm believer that if we can get clients better results, we improve retention, we get better referrals that'll drive overall coaching revenue uh, while also just making a greater impact in the industry and changing lives because we have a better full body sort of systems understanding uh, with everything. And it's awesome. You know, you basically are able to connect with peers and, and like-minded folks in the industry who are trying to do the same work that you're trying to do. So uh, that program is 12 weeks, uh, depending on kind of when the uh, podcast releases in terms of our overall air date, you know, that'll influence kind of whether an open enrollment or not, but I will be uh, taking folks through April 29th of 2021, kind of listening to the podcast uh, on replay. I would just encourage you to reach out if it's after that particular date and or point in time. And we can certainly discuss potentially having you in a future cohort uh, for that. So that's just my kind of specialization program for coaches. And, uh, you know, as far as all sort of web and social media, I'm just Sam Miller Science across the board. So the podcast is Sam Miller Science, Instagram, and then also uh, my website is samlarscience.com. Sam, thank you so much, man. That was absolutely incredible. Thank you for your time and your commitment to excellence. I appreciate you. Thank you, Ben. And that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I don't take your time lightly. I search the world for the greatest guests to help you support your journey to live your greatest life in a body you love ultimately and be lean, healthy, and muscular for life. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. And thank you so much to our sponsors who continue to make this show possible. If you want to support this podcast, if you want this podcast to continue to grow and thrive and spread this incredible message around the world, support our sponsor today, Ancestral Supplements. You can go to ancestralsupplements.com and use the code BEN to get 10% off. I highly suggest you add in organ meats to your diet. If you're not eating them on a daily basis, supplementing is a really good way to get the high quality vitamins and minerals that are highly bioavailable in organ meats. So thank you very much. I'm grateful for you and all of your time. And if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, do that now because we have some incredible guests coming as we do week in, week out. And I hope to continue to provide incredible information to you and your loved ones. If you love this podcast and you know someone who would benefit from the information, I would appreciate a review. I would appreciate a share with at least one person you know and love if you're the type of person that ultimately wants to help people thrive. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.